0: Mark Devers, the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church, once said, It is is the certainty of death that is often underneath a person's indifference to certain parts of life. Um, let that sink in for just a moment. It is the certainty of death that is often underneath a person's indifference to certain parts of life. Uh, The author Graham Greene echoes this statement in his book, The Heart of the Matter, when he says of the character Henry, he had a dim idea that perhaps if one delayed long enough, decisions were taken out of one's hands altogether by death. Uh, Do you hear what they're saying? Decisions and actions delayed temporarily may in fact be decisions and actions made without the burdensome and sometimes painful task of actually making them. We live our lives assuming that it ends at death. Uh, Some people are irresponsible and inactive uh, by disposition. They just can't seem to help it. Others, uh, it's more of a philosophy or a way of life uh, for you the reality of death may manifest itself in fatalism. Uh, All of this has been pre-ordered. There's nothing else we can do. Uh, It has been ordained by a cold and impersonal being. Uh, For some of you, it may manifest itself in defeatism or despair. There's just way, way, way too much to do and way too little time to do it. Uh, So I might as well not do anything. For others, it manifests itself in hedonism and selfishness. This life is short. I'm going to live it for myself. Every decision made is made with the self in mind. Uh, For others, it's uncertainty, agnosticism of sorts. I don't know what to do or or how to do it, so I'm just not going to do anything. Uh, Better to be silent and thought a fool than to open my mouth and remove any doubt. Uh, And for others still, uh, it manifests itself in good old-fashioned apathy. So what? It's all going to end anyway. Do whatever. Just plain out apathy. Uh, None of these, however, are the lives that we are called to in the gospel. The gospel doesn't call us to an action, but rather to live um, where we act and take responsibility to act. We are to live in the light of Christ's resurrection. Uh, This is the entire subtext for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so I just, I want to put that out there. Uh, Every aspect of our lives, every decision, every action we make or don't make, if we are Christians, is to be influenced by the fact that Jesus got up from the dead. We can't do anything, anything, the way that we are called to do it apart from this reality. Jesus got up from the dead. And so with that in mind, let's open up our Bibles. And I I really do hope you have your Bibles for a couple reasons. Last week, David exhorted us to bring our Bibles um, so that we can open the page and look together. And this week, um, we're going to read straight from our Bibles. And so if you don't have a Bible, um, you're going to need to... Go ahead and look off your neighbor, uh, but or listen carefully. Uh, but we're going to be reading Romans 13, uh, and as you're turning to Romans 13, let me just give you a brief overview of what has happened thus far uh, in our series on the gospel. Uh, in Romans 1 through 3, we've learned about our great sin and our great need for a Savior. Romans 3 then continues on to tell us about our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Romans 4, we, Paul looks at forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. In chapter 5, we see Christ's relationship with us more clearly outlined. In Romans 6 and 7, we learn about the newness of life, this life that we now live in the cross. Romans 8 is a beautiful, beautiful summary of Paul's exposition on the gospel. In Romans 9 through 11, what we're getting is an explanation by Paul, uh, a, a remembrance of the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God, specifically in regards to his people, Israel. And then last week in Romans 12, uh, Paul began to tell us, and David preached on Paul telling us how we ought to live this new life in the gospel. It begins, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, that I've just spent 11 chapters, or, well, he wouldn't have said that, um, telling you about, this is how, how we should live. And, and now in, in 13, Paul continues to lay out the practical implications of the gospel in our lives by looking at our obligation to the government, to other people, and ultimately to God. So let's read Romans 13. Again, if you don't have your Bibles, um, your neighbor will not bite you, hopefully. Share with them. Listen as we read. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe nothing to anyone except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. Besides this, you know the time And make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. And so now we just ask that by your spirit, it would manifest itself in us. Amen. Uh, This morning, I want us to consider three obligations that we as Christians bear in light of the gospel that we've been talking about for the last few months Uh, All of this is really a continuation from last week. As I've said in the past, uh, Paul did not write in chapters and verses. Um, So this is one letter, one thought. And so although we've broken it up over a week, we need to remember that this is still a part of what we learned in Romans 12. Paul is telling us how we as believers ought to live um, as transformed Ones with renewed minds. He is telling us in light of the gospel, how then shall we live? And he tells us of three obligations, three responsibilities that the Christian has. The first is a responsibility to submit to the governing authorities. Christians have a civic responsibility to submit to the governing authorities. Again, this is a continuation of what Paul said at the end now of Romans 12 when he said, Do not be overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good. Christians have the responsibility to submit to the governing authorities. We are called not to be overcome by evil, by the evil of rebellion, but rather to overcome that evil with the good of submitting to the government, to submitting to the governmental authorities. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 7 um, and the implications they have for us right now. Uh, he says, Let every person be subject to the government, uh, to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities um, resists what God has appointed and those, author- and those will, who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. In the first five verses, Paul tells us to obey, to submit to uh, the government, and, and to explain. And then he explains to us why uh, we ought to submit to them. And, and let me just say that he anticipates this question. Why? Uh, Why should we submit to the government? Uh, Paul is writing to new believers, and these new believers are experiencing uh, this new life in Christ, and they are trying to figure out All of these things that this life in Christ calls them to. So much so that in uh, Corinthians, Paul tells the believers that if you were married before you became a Christian and you became a Christian, your marriage still counts. Your new life in Christ does not negate that old responsibility. And again, here he is saying your new life in Christ does not... Um, replace that old responsibility. It doesn't negate that old responsibility. We are still responsible to submit to civic authorities. Uh, And and the first reason that we see this, uh, the first reason why is found in verse one. We are to submit to the governing authorities because God has placed them there. Uh, again, look at what he says. Uh, there is no authority except from God, and those who have, those that exist, have been instituted by God. Uh, Paul really can't be any clearer on this point. Uh, he comes at it both negatively: there is none who exists that God has not placed there, and then positively: all of those who are there, God put there. Uh, and, and so we see uh, that that our natural inclination here is to question God's sovereignty. Uh, This is what I do when I read this text. Uh, The first thing that I think of is some corrupt government, some tyrannical leader that I know of or I've read about. And I say, you mean this government is established by God? And that seems to be exactly what Paul is saying. The corrupt government that you are thinking of right now was established by God. Um, And trust me, I I don't take this lightly. Uh, God has been leading me to a more global mindset. I've had the, the... honor and the joy and the privilege to go around the world. And I, I've met a lot of people who either are now currently under corrupt governments or who have been and whose, whose families, whose lives have been um, hurt by corruption, uh, by, by tyranny. Um, and, and so let me say that I understand that this is a very difficult text and that many people uh, have issues with, and a difficult time handling and understanding this text and this doctrine. Uh, There were even some early Christians who wanted to throw it out. Uh, They said, there's no way this could be of Paul. It must have been of the Stoics. Um, So let's go ahead and toss it out. Uh, But the church said, no, no, this is of Paul. Paul wrote this. And so let me say this, that I serve you best by preaching and teaching and telling you what is in here. By preaching this, regardless of if it's, if it's difficult. Uh, we have seen in recent history corrupt governments, wicked governments ruled by wicked dictators. Nonetheless, Scripture says our sovereign God placed them in their positions. A North African pastor you may have heard of, Augustine, uh, said God's ways are inscrutable. Uh, they are beyond our sight, beyond our knowledge does that mean that they are unjust? Our partial vision of what God is doing does not negate the justice and the goodness of the will of God. Consequently, Paul concludes in verse 2 that those who rebel against the governing authorities rebel against what God has appointed. Paul is saying that since God has instituted all authority that exists, rebellion against that authority is rebellion against God, which brings us to the second reason why we submit to authority, and that is to avoid the judgment of God. Uh, this is what Paul is saying. Do you want to incur the judgment and the wrath of God? Presumably not. Then obey and submit to your governing Authorities submit to those that God have placed in power. In verse 3 and 4, Paul gives us a third reason we submit to the governing authorities. Uh, Submit, Paul says, because rulers will not punish you if you do good, but rather if you do wrong. Um, Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Uh, Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. If you want to understand uh, this text, you need to understand at least one thing here. Paul is not writing this text to governing officials, primarily. He's not writing it about making statements of political philosophy. Instead, he's writing to individual believers. However, uh, you can clearly imply here that, that government is ordained uh, to reward good and punish evil. It's clear that Paul just kind of expects that this is what government does. And, and uh, let me say that to some extent, every government does good in that it upholds some semblance of order and prevents anarchy and chaos. Uh, John Calvin, who lived under a murderous and tyrannical king in France, Uh, wrote that rulers never abuse their power by harassing the good and the innocent without retaining in their despotic rule some semblance of just government. No tyranny can therefore exist which does not, in some respect, assist in protecting human society. Or to say that in more modern terms, Mussolini made the trains run on time. I'm also certain that there were honest judges uh, and arrests for crime, murder, robbery uh, un, in Rome uh, under the tyrant Nero. Um, we see in verse 4 that, God bears, or that the government bears the sword as a servant of God. And let me add this to that. Whether they know it or not. Whether they know it and acknowledge it or not. Even when Nero was using the sword to martyr the people of God, he was doing so as a servant of God's ultimate purposes. He was not misusing the sword to the detriment of God's will and God's people, but rather, listen, to the fulfillment of God's word, so that even in the sword, God might work all things out for the ultimate and eternal good, of His people whom He has called, who love Him according to His purposes. Because even in death, we are absent from the body, but we are present in Christ. And so what Nero meant to harm the believers actually worked out to their eternal good as they experienced the true joy of being in Christ. Uh, And so the government, even when it bears the sword wrongly, we can say, Uh, We as Christians, we can say in God we trust through democracy and tyranny alike. God has ordained them. Verse 5 is a summary of the first four verses. And Paul reminds us, the readers, of the first few reasons he set out. And then he adds a fourth and final reason. And that is the reason of conscience. He says, everyone must be in subjection to the governing authorities, not just for the reasons that I've stated before, uh, but also for the sake of consciousness. For the sake of your conscience. Paul then not only tells us why we should submit to the government, but he tells us how. Uh, the first way we've seen um, already, and that is that we are to submit to governing authorities by Obeying them. Where to obey the governing authorities? We obey God by obeying the government. The second is found, though, in verse six and seven. And look at those with me. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the governing authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. The authorities are God's servants attending to the law and order of society. Give them their due. Pay taxes. Christians are to submit to the government by paying taxes. Paul tells, tells us to give everyone what they are due, to pay unto each what he is owed. Uh, and, and it seems as though Paul is alluding to what Jesus said in Matthew 22. Uh, you remember the story. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians teamed up in an unholy alliance. Uh, and they were going to trick Jesus. Or so they thought. And they were going to ask Jesus about taxes and paying taxes. Because, you see, uh, the government at the time, the Herodians, said it's unlawful to, pay, unlawful to not pay your taxes. And so if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, then we can arrest him. However, uh, the Jews at the time were not very happy about being occupied and paying taxes to another government. So if Jesus said, pay your taxes... Uh, then he would, in many ways, alienate many of the people who were following him. Um, And so it seemed like a win-win situation for the Pharisees. Uh, I guess in their mind it always did. At this point, they should have realized that Jesus is smarter than them, but they don't. And so they asked Jesus this question. He right away recognizes that it's a trick, and he says, "Uh, give me the coin that you use to pay your taxes. And so they handed him the coin, the denarius, um, and he held up the coin, and he said, whose face is on this coin? Uh, and they answered correctly. They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And, and this is probably one of the most incredible uh, things. I mean, Jesus has said a lot of great things, but in this statement, Jesus both establishes the authority of the ruling government as given by God and sets their bounds. Give to Caesar what bears Caesar's image and give to God what bears his. You can let that sink in for a little bit. Followers of Jesus pay their taxes. It is a sin not to pay your taxes. This could only be more relevant around April. It is a sin not to pay your taxes. I want to be very clear about that. So I'll say it again. It's a sin not to pay your taxes. But not only that, and and I'll be honest, this is the hard part right now for me. We're not just called to pay our taxes. Followers of Jesus pay their taxes Christianly. What do I mean by that? I'm glad you asked. Scripture tells us to do everything everything that we do as unto the Lord and without grumbling and complaining. I work five days a week and they take Monday. I am ready to grumble and complain. Actually, it's more than that. It's like Monday and half a Tuesday. How you do your taxes Tell something of where your hope lies. Followers of Jesus pay their taxes as unto the Lord and without grumbling or complaining. In the second half of verse 7, moving right along, uh, we see that followers of Jesus uh, respect their governing officials. Uh, We read this, uh, this requirement to obey and submit to the governing authorities by showing them respect. This does not mean we have to agree with our governing officials, but we must respect them. So this does mean that if you cannot agree without showing disrespect, then you ought to disagree silently. No one person is guilty of this. It's both sides. The measure of respect you show the governing officials tells something of where your hope lies. This is extremely hard because we live in a nation that encourages disagreement and voicing your disagreement. That's good. However, As Christians, we must always voice disagreement with respect, or else not at all. All of this has, and may elicit in you, uh, the question, is this submission, honor, and respect only for those governments who are doing the right that Paul talks about earlier? Uh, If you look at what Paul has said, he has assumed that governments will act as they should, if not for the good of the people, for the sake of society. Still, he does not make submission, obedience, honor, or respect explicitly contingent upon this. Uh, Remember, Paul is not writing political philosophy for the state. He is writing as an individual Christian under the rule of the state, Rome at the time, corrupt Rome at the time, to other Christians under the rule of the state. Uh, and if you remember, we, we already know from Scripture uh, that, that God has raised up tyrants, such as Pharaoh in Exodus, where God says, I raised him up for my purposes. Ultimately, it was his destruction but it was for God's purposes. Uh, And the merciless, merciless King Nebuchadnezzar who took the Israelites from their home burned Jerusalem to the ground. Jesus' own rules about taxes seem to legitimize the rule of Caesar and occupying Governor, an occupying army. And even to Pilate, who was about to crucify Jesus, he says this, you would have no power over me if God had not given it to you. In that statement are two things. God gave you the power, but he has some semblance of authority over Jesus. Jesus recognized that man's power is from God. The Lord reminds us of his sovereignty over the world's rulers in Isaiah when he says the Lord brings princes to naught and the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner does he raise them up than he tears them down. And again in Daniel, he changes the times and the seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. The Most High is sovereign of the kings of man. He sets up in them whom he chooses and gives them over to the lowliest of men. We must recognize God's sovereignty in establishing the rulers of the earth. But let's not get confused about what God is saying here. We must never, never disobey God's rule regardless of what the government calls us to do. We must never disobey God, regardless of what any government calls us to do. Uh, All throughout Scripture, we see civic disobedience. Uh, We see uh, a governing official who steps beyond his boundary, beyond their competence, telling, uh, uh, for example, the people of God not to pray to God, but rather to pray to King Darius, stepping beyond his rule, um, and, and and the same with Nebuchadnezzar telling uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow before the graven image of himself. Um, or an Acts with the Sanhedrin when they told the apostles to stop preaching the word of God, to stop preaching the gospel. Still, in all of those cases, the civic disobedience that we saw from Christians was not an attempt to undermine the governing authorities, but rather to honor God. And so if we disobey our governing officials, the end result, the end goal is not undermining their God-given authority, but rather to honor God. Let me also say, that obedience is normal. It's the norm. It's typical. Uh, Civic disobedience is only in extreme cases and always a last resort. Also, it is done as peaceably as possible. In all of these cases, they are not inciting violence against the political and governmental rule. Uh, They are peaceably disobeying. We as Christians need to trust that there is no ultimate authority higher than God and that he will work out all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Christians have a civic responsibility to submit to their governing authorities. The second thing we see in Romans 13 is that Christians have a social responsibility to love their neighbors. We have a social responsibility as believers to love our neighbors. We see this in verse 8 through 10. Look at verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law Uh, Let me just stop there and say that I don't think that Paul is explicitly or even primarily speaking of financial debt here. There are certainly other instances in the Bible where we learn that financial debt is not a good thing. We should understand that you cannot serve, for example, both mammon, money, and God. And that when you are in financial debt, you are enslaved to money and to other people. And that's not what we're called to. Uh, we are called as Jesus to be free, uh, in Jesus to be free. Um, we are called to avoid debt as best we can, altogether. Debt, especially with, with interest, um, but really any debt at all, it's just poor, poor stewardship. Of our money. And many of us, myself included, have car debt or house debt, school debt, credit cards, um, work diligently, diligently to get out of debt. Still, I, I, I genuinely don't think that primarily what Paul here is talking about. His debt I, I, I genuinely think that Paul is just continuing the line of reasoning that he had the verse before um, pay taxes to whom taxes are due render unto each what they um, what they are owed and for us as Christians we owe a debt of love to all people we are To pay people love. And and, and as we pay people love, we are fulfilling the law. Again, look at verse 9 and 10. uh, For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, uh, murder, you shall not steal, nor covet, uh, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. So the command to love sums up the entire law. If you remember what Jesus said, again, in Matthew 22, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. All the law and prophets hang on this. And Paul, by connecting this to paying what is owed, is asking you, what are you spending your love on? Or, what are you spending your life on? Who are you spending your life on? It is not love that has no cost. There's no such thing as loving comfortably or adequately. Not if we are to love as God has loved, as Christ has loved not if we are to love in light of the gospel. It will cost you something. If you remember what Paul has already said in this same letter, uh, in chapter 5, God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or in John, when Jesus says that there is greater love that no man has than that he laid down his life for a friend. In other words, love costs your life. If we are to pay our debt of love that we owe our neighbors, it will cost us everything. We are called to pay out love prodigally, recklessly, radically. Our whole lives are to be given away should be marked by love. Uh, if you remember earlier, I said that part of the reason we don't act is because the certainty of death has manifested itself in uncertainty. For many of us, we just don't know how. How should I love my neighbor? How should I love and give myself in love? I, I, I would be remiss if I did not give you some Tangible ways. I want you to love radically, and I want to give you some ways that we can love radically. I want to give you six ways we as a church should be, ought to be marked by love. Six ways we ought to be marked by love as members of Grace Community Church. Number one, we should as a church and individually be welcoming. We get a lot of visitors. We have some visitors now. Uh, They come through our doors, and if nothing else, they ought to leave feeling welcomed. Yes, we have a greeting team. True. But you are called to welcome visitors into our church. Remember the gospel. You were an outsider, but Jesus welcomed you in. God welcomed you in through Christ. Now, be a welcoming one. Do the same. We want to be a church where newcomers and visitors feel welcomed. Number two, show hospitality. I don't mean that in the context of welcoming people into the church. I just talked about that. I mean, as Christians, we ought to, you ought to, I ought to welcome people, especially people we don't really know that well, into our homes. Invite someone you don't know to have a meal with you and your family in your home. There's no substitute for it. There's no substitute for that kind of love. When was the last time you invited someone into your home, shared your life? A bit of your life with someone else, um, and I and I hear you. I hear you. I, I go to church. I go to small group. I work all week. I just need some time for me and my family. It is not love that has no cost. Invite people into your homes. Number three. Volunteer to watch people's kids. Do you want somebody to know that you love them? Watch their kids. We as a church have a fairly large child population. Um, Volunteer to serve in the nursery. Volunteer to work with the children's ministry. Volunteer to work with the youth ministry. Or find that couple uh, that has four kids under the age of 10. Find the couple that hasn't had a date in eight years. The mother whose average daily conversation revolves around Sid the Science Kid, PBS Kids. All the moms are laughing because they know. Volunteer to babysit for them. Even if you have kids, watch theirs. And I hear hear you. My kids just graduated and left. I finally got some time to myself. I really am just too tired. Have you seen their kids? Have you seen Hazel? (laughs) It is not love that has no cost. Offer yourself up for the parents in this church. Number four, and this is a big one. Foster. Discipling relationships. Part of following Jesus is caring how others follow Jesus. Give yourselves to others that they might be discipled in Jesus. Don't be a part of church just to be fed. Don't, as it were, rush up to the proverbial table, gorge yourself on the bread and wine, and then go home without any regard for your fellow believer. Remember, the one you claim to feast on gave himself up for others completely. Remember that Jesus has commanded you to go make disciples. This is not a gifting. We like to think that this is a gift. I have the gift of hospitality. She has the gift of disciple making. It is not a gift. It is a command. All of us are commanded to make disciples. It is the way of life and the way of love for a believer. So much so that uh, according to scripture, I have a hard time, a very hard time believing you are a follower of Jesus if you are not making disciples. Give yourselves up in love. It's not easy. It's not. Discipling somebody is not just being a buddy with them. It's not even just leading their home group. Discipling someone requires you to get down to the nitty-gritty details of their life, their sin, their hurt, their mess, And to show them how the gospel addresses it. It requires you to open up yourself, your sin, your mess, and share with them how Jesus is working through it. Share with them how they can follow Jesus too. We're called to make disciples by baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ. Which means we're called to be witnessing to evangelizing to the lost. We're not baptizing, already baptized believers. How many conversations with the lost person have you had? How many intentional conversations have you had? Then we're called to teach to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And we're going to see a little bit more about that later. How many discipling relationships do you have? This is hard work. It will cost you your life. But it is not love that has no cost. Brothers and sisters, make disciples. Number five, care for the members of Grace Community Church. Seek out the needs in our congregation and meet them. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Give to the Benevolence Fund. You'll have a chance to tangibly practice that later. Give to the Benevolence Fund. Make meals for the buddy team to distribute. But listen to this, and, and this applies to all of them. Do not just do what is easy. Do not just do what it is, is easy. It is not love that has no cost. Care one another. Finally, number six, we want to be marked by outreach to the community. Loving your neighbor extends beyond this congregation. Show something of the love of Jesus Christ to those outside these walls. Whether it's through mentoring with the Hope Project, or through serving food at a soup kitchen, or seeing that your neighbor's fence has been knocked down and offering your services to help mend it. Don't just give money. Give money if you can. It's good to give your money. For some people, giving money is sacrificial. And for others, it's easy. Don't just give money to a cause or give money to the benevolence fund. Give your life for your neighbors. It is not love that costs nothing. Give yourselves away in love because Jesus gave himself away in love. God raised them from the dead and we now walk in that newness of life that comes from Jesus. And we as Christians have to believe, we have to believe that that newness of life is better than the old way of life. Walking in love is better than walking in selfishness and fear. Giving everything away is better than hoarding everything. uh, Because of what Jesus has done owe oh, no debt to anyone except the debt of love. Give yourself up, as Paul said in the last chapter, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This makes me think of David at the end of Second Samuel. Um, and you may remember this story. David went to make an offering um, and he had nothing to offer. And there was a Jebusite man who offered to give David his livestock and his land so that David could uh, sacrifice it to God. David went to pay the Jebusite man. And the man said, no, don't take money. Just, just take it and give it to God. And David insisted and he said this, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which has cost me nothing. It's easy to come to church one hour a week, hour and a half, two hours if I'm preaching. It's easy to spend 10 minutes a morning, 30 minutes if you're godly reading your word. It's easy to write a check to the faceless peoples of wherever. Do not sacrifice to the Lord that which has cost you nothing. It is not love that costs nothing. Christians finally have a responsibility to submit to the governing authorities, to love their neighbors, and to walk in the light. Christians have a moral responsibility to walk in the light. And that's what these last verses are about. Christians are to overcome the evil of rebellion, With the good of submitting to the governmental authorities, Christians are to overcome selfishness and hatred towards their neighbors. Um, With the good of loving your neighbors, Christians are to overcome deeds of darkness, evil deeds of darkness, by walking in the light. Uh, We find in verses 11 and 12 that something has happened. We are in the midst of of tremendous change, look at verse 11. Besides this, besides everything I've already said, Paul says, this you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from your sleep. Um, Paul calls us to do this, all of this that we've talked about, understanding the present time. Uh, that word "time" in the Greek it's the Greek word "chronos." Uh, it, it's translated sometimes "time," sometimes "crisis," sometimes "season." Uh, we are to understand all of those that we live in. What does that mean? Does it mean that we should know what day it is? What time, literally? it is? No. <laughs> Keep reading. Because we see what Paul is saying is what time it is. It's the time to wake up from your sleeping. Our salvation is nearer than it has ever been. And for us, we think, well, what? Listen to what Paul says. Uh, Your salvation, um, it's nearer now than when we first believed. Uh, and so that, that means that for us, salvation is not merely one event, but this process and this coming event, the fullness, the fulfillment of our salvation is still yet to come. We live now in this time of already, but not yet. Uh, we live in a time when the darkness is fading When the night is over and we now uh, live, not in darkness, but in day. In the light of glorious day. Look at what Paul tells us. We are to put off fleshly things. Put on Christ. Just like Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, were to put off these suits of fig leaves that they sewed for themselves that could not, could not save them, and put on the suits, the God-woven suits of animal skins. We're to put on Christ. For us as believers, this is our logical, as David reminded us last week, spiritual act of worship and response to the gospel. We must walk in the light If we walk in the darkness, if we live in death and hiding, there is no way we can enjoy and live in the fullness of life. If you are still holding and hiding in your sin, um, if you are still hiding that sin from one another, from yourself, from God, you will never, never, never be free of it. You will always be walking in darkness and death. And for you, the certainty of death uh, will remain Underneath your inaction. Look. We have a very, very. Developed. Theology of the cross. We do. We know the cross. We know that on it. Jesus died. Substitution. For us, he bore the wrath of God. We know for us what that means is that because Jesus died on the cross, we have our sins forgiven. And when we die, we do not have to fear hell. But rather we have heaven. However, when it comes to the resurrection, and all of this is in light of the resurrection, this changing time, is in light of the resurrection. When it comes to the resurrection, our theology, our understanding of how it applies to our lives is weak. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus got up from the dead. We believe that. That the dead are risen from the dead. We believe that when Jesus was risen from the dead, he was, as Paul says, the first fruits of the resurrection, which means now all of us who are in Christ, all Christians, are risen from the dead. That final, last, general resurrection in Christ has begun, which means Christianity is not about getting saved so that you get saved out of hell, but it's about being dead and then made alive and living as alive people. This is the theology, the doctrine of the resurrection. We believe that final resurrection has begun. It is now. We're to live in light of the resurrected king. For us, that means that the old is, bra- is, is fading away, the new is breaking in. The kingdom of the resurrection is breaking in to this dying, fading kingdom. And we are now, in essence, in a very real sense, citizens of two kingdoms. And so we live in this kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of the resurrection in mind. Ever since Adam died in his sin and returned to the dust, this has meant hopelessness for us all. But now in Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection, we have newness of life. Put off the things of darkness. Come out of the dark. Confess your sins to one another. Brothers and sisters, are are there quarrels among you? Is there hurt among you? Bring it to the light. Mend your wounds. The gospel calls us to this. This is resurrection life. Like I said, if, if, if we don't do this, if we don't live in the light of the resurrection, we are only living in the certainty of death, and will remain. Um, it will remain under all of our inaction in life. However, for us, it is the certainty of resurrection that compels us to live in the fullness of the calling we have in Christ Jesus. It is the certainty of resurrection that compels us to submit to the governing authorities. It is the certainty of resurrection that compels us to love our neighbors, to pay that debt of love that we owe to our neighbors. And it is the certainty of resurrection that compels us to walk in the light. Are you living in the certainty of our resurrection in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that that you loved us so much that you gave Jesus your only son. That you demonstrated your love for us, that even while we were yet sinners, Jesus who you gave us died for us. And we thank you that you demonstrated your power over death, both eternally and in us right now, by causing Jesus to get up from the grave. Pray that as Christians here, as a church, we would get up. We would fulfill the responsibilities, the call that we have in Jesus Christ, by your grace, and for your glory, for the good of the nations. Amen.